It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Gabby Reese, and welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Alan Stein Jr. And Alan is a performance coach and author. His second book is out, and it's called Sustain Your Game. And he's worked with NBA legends like Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, and Kobe Bryant. So he knows something about achieving and striving. But I think it's his curiosity, not only on the topic, but also, well, how do you pivot once you're there? Or how do you continue? How do you prevail? And he even breaks up his book into three sections, performing, so managing the stress and dealing with it, pivoting once you're there, how do you adapt and keep growing and learning? And then prevailing. How do you, you know, stay excited and, and keep in pursuit of something? And, and really asking the questions, maybe even when it's time to get out of it. For me, oftentimes when people write these books, it feels like they sort of know more or they pretend to know more. But what I realize about Alan, it's his genuine passion for the topic, but also his curiosity. It's like he's trying to figure out it for himself. And it's like he's just spent more time in this space investigating performance and how to achieve goals, whether it's in a sport, in your work, or even looking at yourself personally. Like, hey, I have some behavioral things I'd like to change. Well, how would I do that? And the book really has a simple to follow roadmap on suggestions and ideas about the behavioral changes we can make or, or ones that we can add. So regardless of where you're at in your life or what you're hoping to achieve next or for the first time, Alan Stein is definitely your cheerleader. Again, his latest book is Sustain Your Game. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Alan. Well, hello, Gabby. Welcome to my show, to, to the show. I'm excited. I read your book. I have so I almost have too many notes, so I'm going to really do my best to uh, condense things. And I'm gonna I'm going to have you lead us through this. Is this your second book, or have, did you have other books prior to this that I didn't no, this see? Is, this is the second. Okay, so I feel like when people get into um, you know writing books, they start to they. It's like you knew something, and then you're like, oh, but now I know more, and so I want to sort of update and and connect and communicate. <laughs> So just for fun, uh, maybe just share a little bit of your background, but also I'd love to brush over what was the impetus actually for your first book and sure. what you were hoping readers got, and then we can get into um, Sustain Your Game. I'm, I'm, I think a lot of people will really, they'll enjoy this. Awesome. No, that sounds like a great plan. Uh, so professionally speaking, I've spent most of my career uh, as a basketball performance coach and spent just over 15 years uh, working with mostly elite level high school players. Uh, I live right outside of Washington, D.C., and there's two different high schools that I've had the opportunity to work for, uh, both of which have produced over a dozen players currently in the NBA, uh, Kevin Durant being the most notable. And that ended up leading to some work with Nike and Jordan Brand and USA Basketball, which then gave me an opportunity to work with some players that were already pretty well known and established, uh, like Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, Stephen Curry. So I've had a very unique journey and I've, I've been able to see a peek behind both sides of the curtain to see what it takes to reach that proverbial mountaintop and master your craft 
and then what it takes to sustain that and stay there. And uh, really the impetus for the first book um, was to show folks how to optimize their performance in every area of life. And, and really the books that I write, I'm writing based on what it is that I'm experiencing in my own life. And I'm basically writing the book that I need to read myself. And, you know, when I made the leap from the basketball training world to the keynote speaking world five years ago, uh, that was the reason I wrote Raise Your Game was so I could work on mastery of those uh, different traits and behaviors as I started a brand new field and a, and a new career. And then while I was doing that, uh, and certainly not to imply that I've mastered it by any means, I'm still very much a work in progress. But as I was focusing on what it took to reach optimal performance, I came to the conclusion that that's only part of the journey, that actually sustaining excellence, but doing so while still feeling fulfilled and having a sense of joy for not just years, but for decades, that's where the real challenge lies. And that's certainly where I am in my life right now. Yeah, that's a, that's such an interesting point. I'm, I, I'm really interested to get into the kind of the philosophical sides of it. I'm just curious when a company like Nike or these bigger companies, when they, they hire you, what are they looking for you to do um, in the performance sector? I'm just curious how that translated. At the time, it was really all the uh, physical performance side, so the strength right. and conditioning and fitness component. But because I personally was always so enamored with mindset and everything above the neck, then that was what I was consuming on a very regular basis. So I would make sure that I'd work with that with players as well. So, you know, concepts like being in the present moment uh, was something I would talk to our players about all of the time. But as far as why they actually brought me in, it was for the physical development uh, to improve athleticism and to help bulletproof their bodies against injury. I'm interested when you, we, you know, you were around very high performance programs in, at the high school level and then obviously beyond that in the pros. When you see talent over and over and then you see the talent that kind of makes it through, because I think this translates to life if you're doing business or anything, at what point is it the physical gifts and then what what sort of in, when you see it, the people who like a KD who can really transcend, besides obsession, how much of it is is their ability to put it together upstairs and deal with the losses and the injuries and teammates and things like that? How and do you and because I feel like as you get into the higher levels, that becomes sort of more important. Oh, absolutely, and and you know this firsthand as a world class athlete yourself. The physical part is a piece to the puzzle. And certainly to make it to the likes of the NBA, it's in your best interest to be taller, uh, more explosive, agile, quick, strong. But the, the funny part is when you get to that level, almost everyone checks those boxes. Yeah. Now, of course, you've got somebody like a LeBron James who you know, was born with some immense physical gifts that most human beings are not born with. But for the most part, most players in the NBA and most professional athletes that in any sport um, have a certain level of the physicality. But once you've checked that box and that's that's no longer the separator, uh, now the separator becomes uh, mindset, you know, becomes all, all of the intangibles that will allow you to actualize that physical talent. And when I was working with high school players, uh, I, I viewed it very much as a pyramid, you know, the, the base level was their body. And I wanted them to max out every ounce of potential they had from a physical standpoint, but most importantly, just to take care of their machinery and their body. The next level up were their skills. 
you know, it, it doesn't matter how athletic you are. If you can't shoot, pass, rebound, defend, or handle the ball, then you're not going to be a very good basketball player. So we had to work towards skill mastery. Uh, then the next level up uh, was their mind and their, their basketball IQ. Did they understand how to play the game? You know, it's, it's one thing to be able to make a bounce pass. It's another thing to know when to make a bounce pass and what the proper angle is to make the bounce pass. Uh, and then the top portion, the smallest portion, but arguably the most important uh, is their heart and their grit and their passion and their desire. Um, and as you mentioned there, how obsessed are they with becoming the best player they can be? So I wanted to make sure that we were addressing each one of those levels. But as you kind of work your way up that pyramid, each level becomes even more important. I have a quick question before we dive into the book. You know, there's a lot of parents sometimes who they push their kids. Uh, you know, I have three daughters. I actually don't push them into athletics. Sometimes I'm conflicted that I should have more or not. I do believe that pursuit pursuit of a sport is hard, so hard that maybe you could push someone for a time, but that ultimately if you're going to have real success, which also means some level of enjoyment of the pursuit, which is challenging, that it really does have to come from the individual. I mean, you want to support them, maybe uh, expose them. But in your mind, do you ever see the coach parents in the long game that that works out? Those, you know, those, those sideline coach parents that are, you know, little league parents. You know, I'm so glad you brought this up. And to your point earlier, when you asked me how many books have I written, I really only consider Raise Your Game and Sustain Your Game. Those are the primary books I've written, and those have been traditionally published. But during the pandemic, a good colleague uh, of mine um, uh, and also a fellow sports parent, as I have three children as well, we co-authored a self-published little guide, and it's actually called The Sideline, a, a, guide, a survival guide for youth sports parents. Uh, and it's really to address just that. I can say you know, as a parent, I know you feel the same way. We, we all love our children more than anything in the world. And, and we want to do everything we can to help put them on the path to living happy, well-adjusted, successful lives. Uh, but I've certainly noticed with my three children, and I noticed this as a basketball performance coach when I was specializing in middle school and high school age, a lot of parents are uh, blissfully misguided. Um, you know, I know they want what's best for their children, but they often think what's best is, is pushing their children, making them practice, you know, and you can see that just in their, their behavior on the sideline, whether it's a practice or a game, you know, they're, they're shouting instructions from the sideline, telling their child what they should be doing. Uh, they're berating the referees because, you know, gosh forbid, a, a, a referee makes a mistake during a game. And, and, and I've noticed these behaviors um, and they're really across the board. They're really at every sport and at every level. And, you know, my children are a little younger. I have 12-year-old twin sons and a 10-year-old daughter. Uh, so they've been playing youth sports for a couple of years now. And, and it just used to blow my mind, you know, when they were seven years old and they were playing soccer, how intense the parents were on the sideline. And, and it was almost comical. And um, I have known from, from the research as well as my own observation, kids today are quitting sports earlier and earlier. And their number one reason for doing so is adult interference. And most of those adults are the parents. It's not coming from the coaches. And so here we've got parents who are trying to do, you know, what they believe is best, but it's it's really going in the wrong direction. And 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 you and I both know, you know, how important sports are just to the overall development of young people and, and to teach them life lessons that they won't learn anywhere else. 
So we need to be doing, and I say we as the adults, need to be doing everything in our power to encourage kids to play sports for as long as they can. And for most of them, you know, that's through high school. When, When the high school days are over, the vast majority of players will be done. But if you have an opportunity to play after that, that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, but but instead of having kids quit at 10, 11, and 12, can we get them participating in sports till they're 17 or 18 during those really formative years? And that was why we wrote that guide, you know, hopefully not in judgment of parents or to be critical of parents, but to show them that there is a better way. And, and I love the word you used before, uh, support. You know, instead of pushing children, Let's encourage them. Let's support them. Let's love them unconditionally. But let's make sure they're playing the sport because of their enjoyment, not because we're trying to vicariously live through them. And I I know many well-intentioned parents who have done that. Oh, you're much more polite than I am. They're they're, they're (laughs) living vicariously through their kids because they have some unsatisfied dream. And it's like, you know what? I've had to learn this as a parent. I have a, one of my children gets very, very good grades and she is built for sports. And I'm like, what a waste. You know, it's like, that's my weird filter. Right. And so it's just an interesting thing where it's, but there is so much uh, data, like you said, especially for girls, the power of them staying a little bit longer. So I I just want to remind parents, First of all, if you have a kid that's in sports, actually, it doesn't matter how good they are. One percent of them will ever have the opportunity to play in college. So at some point, um, like you said, the lessons of working together in a team and losing and winning and all these things, I think these are the valuable things because we've all met people that have won everything at every level. And it certainly doesn't make them a good person. And I think as parents, our job is to develop them as human beings, not I have a champion. It's like, okay, that's great. But you know, that's a whole other story. So let's, let's, let's get into your book. You sectioned it off into three kind of sections and you alluded to this at the top of it, how to perform and and deal with that stress, how to pivot and adapt. So let's say you're in the thick of things and you don't want to plateau. And then finally how to prevail and sort of sustain and have some longevity. Let's go right into someone sort of building the scaffolding to perform you get into, you know, dealing with the stress and fundamentals. Maybe we could just kind of talk about this section a little bit sure. because it's, I think it's for a lot of people. And even if they're in a job, see, I'm trying to take everything, regardless of its sport, it translates over and you talk to many businesses and things like that. So I think it's just a, it's a great template to work from. Talk to me about, you know, how does one person get ready to manage kind of what it takes, this pursuit. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you went in this direction. You know, uh, famous Indiana basketball coach Bobby Knight always said that, you know, uh, before you can worry about winning, you have to know what loses. Like you have to figure out what's going to get in the way and impede winning. And that was really the impetus for these three focal points was as I was looking at my own life and trying to figure out what's preventing me from sustaining excellence and performing at a high level for long periods of time. And it really was stress, stagnation, and burnout. And these are three things that, you know, I'm certainly not alone, but I've experienced plenty of in in my life. And again, I try to write books that I need to read myself, but I also know that I'm not alone and that there's, you know, millions of people out there going through the same thing. And and I certainly noticed through my own observation and experience uh, that the pandemic exponentially heightened all three of those components. I mean, it, it certainly threw some wrenches into the works. And the baseline of that is something that every human being on the planet experiences, and that is stress. 
And I figured if I could somehow figure out an effective way to manage stress, notice I didn't say master stress. I mean, I'm, I'm not coming from a place of mastery here, but if I could figure out and develop the tools to help manage stress on a day-to-day, that would certainly make my performance escalate, but more importantly, it would make life so much more joyful and fulfilling. And I finally came to the conclusion, and it only took me 40 plus years, so I'm a little slow to the party, but I finally came to the conclusion that the environment, you know, uh, uh, circumstances and events and situations and what people say and what people do, that stuff is not what causes stress. What causes stress is our response to those things or our perspective of those things, or more importantly, our resistance to those things. Mm -hmm. And that if you learn to have some level of acceptance, now, before anyone rolls their eyes and thinks I've completely, you know, gone AWOL here, I'm not saying that the things that go on in the world are to your liking, and I'm not saying they're your preference, and I'm not even saying some of the things that happen in the world are good. I'm Mm -hmm. simply saying that once they've happened, they are now fact, they are reality, And you can even fight against that, which is completely futile and will only increase your stress and make you miserable. Or you can learn to just let it flow through you and actually have a level of acceptance and choose very thoughtful, intentional responses to those things. And and I, I say this with a huge smile and all of the love and compassion I have in my heart. It is not the universe's job to conspire to do everything to make me happy. To, to do everything in the world to make Allen Stein Jr.'s life as easy and convenient as possible. And, and that's when I would, you know, sometimes laugh at myself if I'm, I'm stuck in a little bit of traffic and I'm late for a meeting. You know, I, I used to get so bent out of shape and so frustrated acting as if this was happening directly to me. Like if these hundreds of cars, you know, and the people driving them woke up that morning and said, we're going to get in this guy's way a little bit later this afternoon because we want him to be late for his meeting. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. So I've learned just to accept there's nothing I can do that there's traffic in front of me. It's not my preference, but I'm going to be okay and I can handle this. And and instead of white knuckling the steering wheel or honking the horn or giving somebody the finger, I'm just going to enjoy some stillness. Uh, or I'm going to listen to another episode of the Gabby Reese show, or maybe I'm going to call my parents and catch up with them. I have the power to choose my response. And I find the fact that I have that power to be very liberating and empowering. So I still have my moments where I have setbacks, but generally speaking, I manage stress pretty well these days. How do you teach someone? Because I also think you'll see a lot of people naturally who have that capacity and then they can they get put in environments that they can hone it. But if someone who I find, and, and I say this in a complimentary way, people who are more emotionally based, heart based, I find because they're emotional, sometimes this actually is, a. I mean, we all need the skill, but there needs to sort of be a practice in place, like everything. So what would be the tidbits that you would say to somebody, hey, here's three or four things in your practice of making space from you and that response? Well, the first is awareness. Uh, Everything will always start with awareness because you're never going to fix something you're oblivious to and you're never going to improve something you're unaware of. So the very first thing you have to do is be aware of the fact that whatever's happening right now is outside of my direct control. And the only part that I can control is my response to that. And I want to be very thoughtful and intentional in choosing a response that's going to make things better and and move me forward. And and the reason I say have that awareness is many people have unconsciously programmed themselves to believe that they don't have a choice in their response, that it is an automatic default. 
that when there is traffic in your way, the only response possible is to get upset and to get frustrated and to get irritated and to honk your horn. And I just want to let those folks know, again, with empathy and compassion, that is not the only response. That may be the response you've chosen for the last several decades of your life, but in a moment, you can change that response. And that takes an attitude of extreme ownership. Uh, and it certainly takes you know some humility to acknowledge that the way I've been approaching things and, and having these knee-jerk emotional reactions is not serving me. I mean, ultimately, think about it. When you get upset in traffic, you're only hurting yourself. I mean, all of those cars in front of you are completely oblivious to the fact that you're behind them. They have no idea that you're running late for your meeting. I mean, it, the only person you're poisoning is yourself. So it does. I, I say with a smile, although I say it with, with tremendous compassion, it's almost comical that, we, that this is completely self-induced, that when we raise our own stress level, we're just punishing ourselves. And, and I found through years of being incredibly you know, uh, unhappy and unfulfilled, that that current you know, way I was handling things wasn't working. So I needed to make a change. And you know, uh, one of the things I say a lot of times from stage as far as, as, as change is concerned, if you keep doing what you've been doing, you will keep getting what you've been getting. If you yeah. don't like what you've been getting, you need to change what you've been doing. So I had to acknowledge with great humility that the way I was approaching life before was not very effective. Well, and also what you realize that's fascinating. First of all, I use traffic, especially if I'm not with one of my kids, because that'll be the time I actually try to use to visit with them because that's a powerful time that they talk to you. Mm -hmm. Is um, I call it active meditation, where if I'm by myself, I, I get real quiet. I don't have something on. You know, it can be a time for learning, which I love, you know, learning in the car, but because it feels like time well spent is I, that, that's when I do my check-in. It's like, Hey, how am I doing today? How, how is, how are Laird and I, what's, let me do a think about my business. These are these small moments that we can do these personal check-ins to sort of, you know, daily because people think, Oh, well, I thought about it two weeks ago. I do think we need these daily check-ins. But what you're also talking about, and nobody really wants to hear it because it, there's so much connected to feelings, is mm -hmm. this too is a discipline to like oh. be able to observe yourself and go, oh, look at Gabby's about to go into crazy time. Because that's the other thing. I think sometimes just observing yourself and being like, I, I mean, and I, I especially enjoy it when I fail and I'm like kind of flip my shit with one of my kids and I'm like, Oh, you lost this battle. You look like such an idiot. And I bite the hook and I'm like, yeah, and I'm in. Right. But just still to always have that ability to be, to be in it and to be above it, to observe it and be like, you know, this is probably not serving me. So I want to remind people that, you know, using the time for something and going really at the end of it, what's the worst thing that's really going to happen? You're going to be maybe a little bit late or what have you. And that is stressful. But when we can really look at it, like, is this life and death? Does it warrant this intense of a response? It's like, come on, you know, I, I don't know. It's an interesting thing. And I think sport is an interesting way to learn this because when you're playing, it does have to be the most important thing. It does have to be life and death. But let's say after you play, it doesn't go your way. How do you then put it back into perspective so you can go to practice the next day? So it's this weird going in and then coming back out of things. So I, I think your point is, is so well taken. So you talk a lot about acceptance, which I think is a, it's a form of surrender. It's a form of the, you know, this higher idea that maybe we're all trying to get to. 
I know it's it's a, a tricky thing. There was something that uh, somebody said in your book, Coach Buzz Williams. Um, oh no, forgive me. He talks about uh, you're either in two types of activities. Uh, I I believe traction or distraction. Oh yeah, I love that. And and before I we're gonna put a pen in that for one second because okay. you said something really really powerful and insightful, and I want to double down on that. You talked about this concept of learning to be a spectator to your own emotions. And, and that is absolutely one of the tactics that's helped me the most, you know, is is almost viewing myself as if I'm an actor in a movie. And now the original Alan is simply the director. And it's like, okay, here this character is. He's stuck in traffic and he is acting like a complete buffoon right now. Cut. That, we don't want that. That's not what this scene calls for. We actually, this character is much more composed uh, and poised. So we need to re, you know, take a take too. And, and it reminds me of the fact that our emotions are designed to inform us. They're not designed to direct us. You know, I want to be crystal clear with everyone. Um, right. I believe in experiencing a wide range of emotions and I don't personally ever suppress resist or ignore my emotions. If I'm feeling angry or upset or I'm feeling frustrated, I allow myself to feel that. I give myself permission. I just don't let it dictate my behavior. I don't let it dictate how I show up. I don't let it dictate my response. I don't let it dictate how I treat others. I want those things to always be thoughtful and intentional. And I want to be very consistent in how I show up. You know, mm -hmm. I don't ever want someone, you know, that feels like they need to come to me and talk to me about something to, to feel like they have to kind of take my pulse and go, okay, which, which Alan am I going to get right now? Is it the really moody, upset Alan because things in the world aren't going great? Or is it the happy and chipper Alan because things that are? Uh, I want my response and the way I show up to be incredibly consistent. So I allow myself to feel frustrated if I'm in traffic. I just don't allow that to dictate my behavior and how I show up. So I'll choose to do something you know, that is going to serve me and move me forward. But this concept of being able to view yourself and, and, and be a spectator to your own emotions uh, is an incredibly powerful tool. And, you know, just imagine if you were watching yourself behave in that moment, or you were watching one of your children or a friend behave that way in the moment, you'd probably go, my goodness, they've, they've lost it. What is wrong with this person? Uh, and that's how we need to be able to, to look at ourselves. Yeah. Isn't that what family's called? I, I also... <laughs> I also want to say that there have been times that I've had that be, I usually, uh, to be honest, traffic is the one that gets me. I totally, uh, it's the one that I can, it's like, it's like my monkey mind really takes over is, um, I have also apologized to my children and been like, you know what? I have totally been acting like an idiot. I'm going to grab a gear and chill out. Like, you know, I think yeah. also even within that, because you can teach them that awareness and that adjustment in real time and be like, those 15 minutes of like loony mom, she's yeah, totally yeah. going to get it together now. Sorry about that. So, <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I love the fact that you have the awareness to know that you can change that in a moment and that you can also quickly move to the next play. So, you know, if you find yourself being the loony mom for 15 minutes, <laughs> then just don't be the loony mom in that 16th minute. Make sure that we make right. that change then. And we, we give ourselves some grace. Like we don't beat ourselves up over the fact that for 15 minutes, we didn't show up as our best self. Let's just course correct now. Uh, and you said one other thing that was really important with, with high level competitive sports or even high level competitive business where the stakes are high. Keep in mind though, that maintaining your composure and managing stress in the moment and being present is going to allow you to play at a higher level. 
You know, when you start doing everything at this manic and frantic pace and you're getting bent out of shape because the referee missed a call or you just missed a wide open shot, you know, that's going to detract from your performance. So getting upset over trivial stuff or getting upset over really important stuff does not lead to higher performance. So uh, those that can stay composed, even during the, you know, the, the high stakes of a, a, an athletic competition, it doesn't mean that they don't care. Like you don't have to act a fool to prove that you care. You know, actually holding, you know, keeping composure and poise amidst all of the chaos is the best thing you can do. And to me, that's ultimately the definition of mental toughness. The the most mentally tough athletes on the planet are the ones that can maintain poise no matter how high the stakes are and no matter how chaotic the environment. And if they miss their last five shots, oh, well, those are over. I'm going to stay focused and composed and do my best to make the six shot. And uh, we see that across all sports. And as you've said several times, that parlays into parenting, parlays into business, parlays into every area of our life. You you say this in your book, too, that also what's important is almost like the short memory of your mistakes and the ability to be present and forward. And I think that's true where... It, that connects to like, I was having bad behavior. I pivoted. I'm into, I'm back on the game plan and then allowing other people in our lives to have that same freedom. I think it's interesting. Sometimes we have standards and we, it, it's a, it's a very good lesson too, where you can even have a kid who's, you know, being a knucklehead. And then all of a sudden you go, Hey, what's up with this? And they get a chance to take a look at it. We also have to give them and our partners and people who work with us or work for us that same opportunity to go, okay, I, I see that I can, I, I'm going to, you know, change gears here. So I, I think it's an important trait to have, but also to give that same grace to the other people in your life. Cause you just will encourage that over and over if you can do that. Oh, so you know? well said. Absolutely. We got to show ourselves some grace and we got to do the same with others and, and we need to resist the very easy temptation to judge. You know, when, when I say loony mom, I'm saying that with a smile because those were the words oh. that you chose. But, you know, if, if you they and I were together. friends and I saw you, <laughs> if they I saw you behaving that way. Don't, don't, I, Alan, don't get so PC on me. It, be, parenting <laughs> is, is if you're not a little loony going in, you will be made at least a little loony by the process. Come on now. Um, oh, you ab- so absolutely let's talk about um, traction or or distraction. I, I really like this. And in this day and age with, with phones and technology, I thought it was really just a, a great comment. Oh, most certainly. Yeah. That was one of my favorite, favorite things that I, that, that he was kind enough to share. Um, I realize how complex the world can be. And I know that there are so many different gray areas and nuances, but for me personally, I find it very helpful when I can make something binary, when I can make it left or right, yes or no, uh, it actually helps make the decision-making process more fluid. Um, so, so every single thing that you encounter in your life is going to either distract you away from your goal and your North Star and what you're trying to accomplish, uh, or it's going to add traction and move you a little bit closer. And the sooner you can have the discernment over which bucket that goes in, uh, mm-hmm. then the better off you'll be. And it, it's very helpful for time and energy management because obviously we want to say yes to as many things that give us traction as possible and do our best to say no to the things that distract us. And you mentioned one of the primary culprits uh, and that is the, the phone and, and social media and a lot of the shiny objects in the world today that are designed to distract us. 
That's their entire goal is to keep our eyes and ears on them for as long as possible so that they can maximize ad revenue and subscriptions and things like that. So we just have to be aware of that. And, and like I said before, it all starts with an awareness. And you have a diagram. So this this book is full of information, but you have something in there that, that really... Um, Eisenhower's uh, box. It's it's a really great diagram, and it's so straightforward for time management. You know, urgent, not urgent, uh, not important, important, and you show these kind of cross sections. So, also in this book is very concrete, sort of actionable ways to dissect your time and you know where things might fall in this box. Yeah, I found that to be a really helpful tool. And the mistake a lot of people make is in, in the labeling. You know, most people tend to lead their lives as if everything is urgent and everything is important. And it simply can't be. I mean, it's if everything's important, then nothing's important. I mean, we could make that compelling argument. So it's having the discernment to say, okay, what things absolutely require my attention right now in the present moment, which things can be put on the back burner? You know, which things need to be accomplished now and which things can be done a little later? which things do I not even need to do at all? You know, uh, most people in the world have some type of to-do list. Uh, I think it's equally important to have a not to-do list. Like these are the things that get in the way of winning. These are the things that get in the way of me being my best self. So I want to do the best I can not to do those things. And uh, that list is every bit as important as the to-do list. Sometimes I feel like we, we also don't give value to being, to just, you know, to just being and 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 sort of thinking and 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 I don't mean like stillness and meditation on top of a hilltop I just mean like just kind of hanging out or and um and seeing how you feel and see what arises what do you feel like doing at that time and it's not on a schedule and not on not necessarily on your phone because that is a, not only is it a distraction but there's nothing creative about that right like Going inside, you know, there's a great uh, book called The Comfort, Comfort Crisis and talked about the power of being bored, boredom and how many great things come out of boredom. So I want to encourage people because I think people feel guilty for just like being and, um, you know, kind of letting that take you where it may versus, okay, now how am I going to be productive? And and being on the lot, on being online, it's a time suck, but it's, it's certainly not as productive productive. So you talk a lot about, so you have focus and, um, and dealing, you know, with stress, but you talk a lot about preparation. Yeah. A a mentor of mine, his tagline was always make preparation your separation. And that was something that, that I really took to heart. You know, ultimately I I believe there's only two things we have a hundred percent control over a hundred percent of the time. And that is our own effort and our own attitude. Everything else is kind of a spoke off of that wheel. And I do think if you combine effort and attitude, you get preparation. I mean, you you control how prepared you are for any scenario. I mean, both of us had control over how prepared we were to show up for this interview. So preparation is a controllable factor. And I find that the more you do the work on the front end, the more you practice, the more you prepare. And most of this work takes place during the unseen hours when no one else is watching you. Uh, It helps your ability to manage stress in the moment because you're fully prepared. You know, as a keynote speaker, my goal is to be in full service of the audience. And I do a tremendous amount of due diligence and customization prior to the engagement so that I can really hit the target for the audience. But I also rehearse incessantly so that when I'm on stage, 
I don't feel like I have to have anything memorized. I don't feel like I have to be robotic. I know it so well that I can just show up and be present and just be. And, and, and when I do that, I have to also accept, you know, I'm, I'm a flawed person. I'm going to make some mistakes. I'm going to stumble on my words. I may forget a point, but that's okay. That's the human experience. You know, keynote speaking is a human speaking to other humans. And, and I allow myself and give myself that room. But the preparation is what allows me to show up and have the confidence to just be in the moment. So preparation, you know, applies to every single area of our life. A lot of people get lost, though. They don't know how to begin. They don't know how to start. I think, you know, sometimes it's like studying for a test. Like, where does one start? So do you, I, I would just love to know your take on it, because I, I have to do a lot of preparation, whether it's, you know, reading your book and trying to figure out what's our journey today in the conversation, the part that I participate in, you're obviously going to control the other side of that. But I think, you know, with people, it's, you talk a lot about having mentors and things like that. So I just want to remind people that it, it, it can be daunting to know where to begin, especially when you're trying something new. And so it's okay to ask for help. And, and and to learn from people, we go to school. We have teachers. We become adults, and we think it's it's not you know it's like not okay to have mentors. I think it's about also finding or going to people and being like, hey, listen, I'm thinking of taking this on or doing this. How do you approach it? And I I find that to be really helpful. And you talk a lot about mentorship and having mentors in the book. Oh, most certainly. I'm so glad you went in that direction. Yeah. Uh, whether it's a formal mentor or a paid coach um, or it's something a little less formal than that, we should always be very proactive in reaching out. Um, and I also believe we should be proactive in reaching out in both directions. You know, uh, if things are going really well in your life and you're in the groove and you're performing at a high level, just know that there's other people out there that could use your help and use your counsel and mentorship. So be proactive in sending the elevator back down to help them. And then at the same time, have the courage and the humility to ask for help whenever it is that, that you need it. And, uh, you know, that oftentimes our ego and our pride can get in the way that, you know, well, what are people going to think of me if I have to ask for someone's help? And I just always remind them using sports as the example. I mean, the best athletes on the planet all have coaches and many of them have a myriad of coaches. Many of them have a, a fitness strength and conditioning coach. They have someone that helps with their skills. Uh, in today's day and age, many of them have a mindset coach or a mental sports performance coach. Many of them have a nutritionist to help them design what's the, the healthiest meals for them to eat. So I'm a huge believer in kind of the coaching and, and the, the mentorship paradigm. And, and, and I very much believe, you know, I want to serve as a mentor to some people. And I also want to be mentored by other people at the exact same time, because those different vantage points really help expand my perspective. Well, a hundred percent. And it's funny because you can also be helping somebody, but just because they might be a little younger than you, something about their perspective, it feeds back on you about how you can incorporate this new new idea into the skill set that you have already, which is so helpful. You know, this, this reminds me last night I, I was eating with a friend of mine. She's very, very smart. And she said to me, you know, I don't know that much about religion. Like mm. we were talking about, you know, Christianity, what's the difference, Catholicism, Presbyterian. And it was just interesting. Cause I said, you know, what you should do is like, you should either take an online class because it was like a really honest thing that there's so many things like Greek mythology, history, whatever it is. I think a lot of us are like, I know something, but I don't know. But maybe now it would be hard to say at my age, like, 
hey, you know, I don't, I don't really know that much about that. And everyone would think you're supposed to, right? So I want to remind people if there's like a topic, whatever it is, it's okay, no matter how old you are to be like, yeah, I, I don't, I got to, I would like to learn more about that. So, cause it's, it's another opportunity. Absolutely. Another mentor of mine said something so in line with what you just mentioned there. He said, Alan, every single human being on the planet knows something that you don't. And if you ever get a chance to talk to them, it's your chance to figure out what that is. And, and just know, and it doesn't matter what vocation they work in. It doesn't matter their age, their experience. They know something or have experienced something in the world that I haven't. And, and I need to be so fascinated and curious and humble to figure out what that is. Now, if that is true, and I do believe it is true, that also means I know something that everybody else doesn't know. And I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to share that uh, and help other people out. So yeah, uh, yeah, if we can get past worrying about what other people may think if we have to ask the question or ask for mentorship, it's a very liberating and empowering you know, place to come from. So I, I no longer worry too much about that type of external validation. And if, if someone thinks I'm foolish for not knowing something, that's okay. I mean, they, they, yeah. they can have their opinion, but I don't really worry about that. And I'm certainly not going to let it hold me back from learning something valuable that could actually help me in my journey. Yeah. There's something funny when someone's like, you don't know that and you go, no. Yeah. And it's like, and, you know, <laughs> so you, yeah. you, I, I'm curious this, I think this is an important point. You, you talk about sort of almost developing an alter ego. And, and the first person that came to my m mind was, uh, Beyonce because she had Sasha Fierce who did this mm -hmm. whole other music and type of music and, and communication. And, and, um, it's almost like maybe because, most of us, I, I believe, are trying to be humble. So we, um, I, I, I was with someone yesterday and they said something about being a good athlete. And I go, I have to be honest, I've never really thought of myself as a good athlete. And I also live with somebody who I perceive as a very, very good athlete. So that sort of reinforced that for me for years and years. I know so many good athletes. And she was like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe that's why, maybe that's a good thing. But I think there's something to be said for having, and you say this in your book about having this alter ego also that sort of can also go out there and do it. Absolutely. I learned this firsthand from a, a friend and colleague named Todd Herman, who wrote an entire book that is a must read about having this kind of alter ego approach. And what really resonated, I didn't even realize I was doing that in different capacities in my life until Todd really crystallized it. But what he reminded me of is when we were kids, you know, and, you know, I, I'm, 46 years old. So I'm growing up in the, basically in the early eighties. And you know, how many times uh, I would either be in the front yard pretending I was Michael Jordan, or I was in the backyard pretending I was GI Joe, or I was up in my bedroom with a makeshift cape pretending I was Superman. You know, we would take on these different egos and personas and use our creativity and imagination. And we were completely uninhibited. Like you couldn't have told me that I wasn't Superman. I actually believed it, you know, when I put the Clark Kent glasses on or I had the cape that my mom made for me. Like I actually believe that. And and we all know how powerful belief is. So mm -hmm. we, we can believe that we're not good enough, we're not capable, that we're going to screw things up, but that's completely hypothetical. Like the future is always hypothetical. You can't ever be in the future outside of your own mind and outside of language. It's always a projection. And if the future is already going to be hypothetical, why not just assume that the future is going to turn out in your favor? Why not just assume that your next speaking engagement is going to go really well? 
I mean, yeah, you can assume that it's going to go poorly, but both of those things are completely made up. So I've, I'm trying to reprogram myself, and I still have a long way to go, into making the prediction and projection that the future is very bright and that things are going to work out. But I also know that if they don't, I'll have the strength, poise, and composure to be able to handle whatever's thrown at me. And uh, that all stems from kind of having this alter ego approach of, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about being a spectator to your own emotions. Uh, it's very similar to that, that you can step outside of whatever labels you've put on yourself or whatever labels you've allowed other people to put on you. You can absolutely step outside of that and, and be somebody else. I think that's so important because we all, you know, we're searching for identity when we're young and then somehow we get stuck in that thing. And it's like, oh my goodness. And, and, and also, by the way, we're so many things. I mean, we're, we're partners to somebody We're you know, maybe we're an employee or a boss or maybe we're a friend. It's like all these things, but I really appreciated that. This podcast is brought to you by Quince. I know all of us want luxury things and we love high quality, affordable pieces. And Quince really has this in spades because I think for me, I'm interested in getting nicer pieces, just a few, not a ton, get those essentials and you can transition them easily from one occasion to the next and not get crazy with your spending. So for example, I ordered a pair of black linen pants. I've even gotten, they have hundred percent Mongolian cashmere sweaters for like $50. So, you know, I think sometimes you do want to change it up, but you don't want to spend a ton of money all the time. And they've got beautiful items, organic cotton sweaters, washable silk tops. This goes, you know, like near and dear to my practical side and even timeless 14 karat jewelry. So the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And you go, okay, well, how are they doing that? It's really simple. They're partnering directly with top factories. And so they cut out the cost of the middleman and they pass that saving on to us. And Quince, it really is on top of not only styles and materials, but also who is making their products. They're factories that they work with. They know are safe, ethical, and responsible, practice responsible manufacturing, and only use premium fabrics and finishes. I really love that. So if you want to explore all the incredible products on Quince and indulge in affordable luxury, all you have to do is go to Quince dot com slash Gabby for free shipping on your order and a 365 day return. That's quince, Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Gabby to get free shipping and a 365 day return at quince.com slash Gabby. This podcast is brought to you by Babbel. I don't know about you, but every time I travel, I kick myself that I haven't spent more time learning whatever language it is in the place that I'm visiting. It's like you want to connect with the people in a real way. Well, immersion, you know, that's the best way. But most of us can't move somewhere and, and you know, live there and learn the language, even though that's number one. But number two is with Babbel. And the reason that is, is first of all, they have it's really quick. They've got 10 minute lessons, and but they're handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. But what I love about it is it's designed by real people for real conversations. It's like, listen, we all want to know, like talk about food and directions and things like that. And Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real life situations and delivered with conversation-based teaching. So you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. 
And that's the other thing I love is just combining that because you think, okay, maybe using a trip that you have planned or getting together with family somewhere, using that as your motivation to get going. And you don't have to pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that maybe don't really even help you, you know, speak a new language. In fact, studies show, there was one study, they did studies at Yale, Michigan State, that Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours, that's nothing, is equivalent to a full semester at college. They've got over 16 million subscribers sold, plus all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. So here's the incredible offer for a special limited-time deal for our listeners right now. You can get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for my listeners at babbel.com slash Gabby. So to get 50% off at babbel.com slash Gabby, that's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash Gabby. Some rules and restrictions may apply. So you you get into and I really thought this was interesting. You talk about you know choke when people choke in performance, and how that your your inner word word speak is like four thousand words per minute. Is that right? Yeah, it was something along those lines. It, it's astounding. <laughs> I mean, our, our brains are, our brains are supercomputers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think when you drive a car, there's something like you're making twenty six decisions per second when you're driving a vehicle. Uh, I mean, that's, that's remarkable. And think of how many of these systems in our lives are completely unconscious. I mean, you know, at present, you and I are focused on having a lovely conversation. Neither one of us is thinking about regulating our heartbeat or our respiratory system or any of that stuff. You know, we're not even conscious of, you know, how our feet feel on the ground until you actually bring that to awareness and start to think about it. So most of these systems are going on behind the scenes uh, and it has to be that way because if we had to consciously make our heartbeat and consciously inhale and exhale, we'd be in a little bit of trouble. Yeah. So, so a lot of people, they have a fear of not performing well, failing, choking. Can we just, can we put it into perspective? What, what's happening when this happens? Sure. It's when, you know, ultimately, and Michael, Dr. Michael Gervais uh, says that you're choking off access to your craft. And I, I, that was the best way that I've ever heard anybody frame that, really appreciated that. What you're doing is you're, you're ultimately, your perception of the stakes in the moment, and this is all self-induced, are exceeding your current skill level or level of mastery. And that's what the issue is. But if we go back to being present and having a level of acceptance uh, it gives us the serenity and the poise to then be able to hopefully rise, you know, to the occasion or rise to the moment. You know, the interesting part about choking is uh, choking is not just poor performance. It's actually, you know, worse performance than you would under any other circumstances. And, and all of these things are incredibly understandable. I mean, they are they are human. I mean, we we get it. But you just have to have the poise to realize, especially in, say, sports, that the skill that you need to execute in this moment is no different than the skill you've executed a million times in practice or in workouts. You know, the, the, it's, a, it's an illusion that the stakes are higher because we've built that up in our mind. Yes, I understand it's game seven. Yes, I understand there's only three seconds left. But if we put our focus on that, on the external part, uh, we increase the chance that we're going to 
to choke or decrease performance. If we actually focus on the internal part that says, I've done this a million times, I've worked on this skill, I'm more than capable of hitting this shot, and I believe if anybody's going to hit it, it might as well be me, uh, then you'll you'll rise to that occasion. And and one thing I want to make sure is is blatantly obvious to everyone listening, all of the stuff that we've been talking about is very basic in premise. None of this stuff is easy to do. Uh, I don't want you to think for for two seconds that if they somehow threw me into game seven of the NBA finals and I had to hit a corner three, uh, that I'd be able to, to, to be able to do that fluidly. It takes practice. All of this stuff takes practice. And, and that's where we need to be thankful that the world provides us with no shortage of opportunities to practice all of these skill sets. You know, every time you're sitting in traffic, just remember, this is an opportunity for you to practice being patient, and practice being, you know, present. And, you know, every time you're in line and there's a slow cashier, same thing. It's another time for you to get a rep at practicing patience. So ultimately these things that we view as obstacles and hindrances uh, are actually gifts because they just give us another repetition. And, and you know, as well as anybody, you know, repetition is, is the path to mastery. And I, and in, in life, not in performance, as much, but in life, because monotony is a killer, right? Mm -hmm. um, I do have, I do, I think I play little games where, um, you know, I'll be like, I will acknowledge like I'm feeling rebellious against waiting in line and, mm -hmm. and be like, oh, another, you know, effing opportunity to practice. So I, I tend to in life try to honor both sides. I think when it's higher stakes or real performance, I get all ser kind of more serious about it, but the way that I take the pressure off is to be like, oh, here we go, you know, like have a little fun and almost be like a belligerent teenage girl inside myself. But then, like you said, I don't act, I just act, I just am cool and have fun with it. But I, I want to remind people, you don't have to be a pressure cooker either. Like you can make it a game scenario when it's possible because you don't want to, you're not doing that, um, you know, at work or, you know, in the middle of a sporting event. I want to move to the second, the middle part, which talks about pivoting. But there was a line in the, in the first section that was discomfort is the beginning of the work. And I think that that was so very, I could relate to that 100%. And it's like, oh, okay, here we go, you know? Yeah, you want to reach that discomfort. And the sooner you can, the better off you are. I mean, that's discomfort um, is the prerequisite to growth and prerequisite to improvement and prerequisite to evolution and self-actualization and, and so forth. So we want to learn how to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And we want to learn how to seek appropriate discomfort. You know, one of the things I put in the book that I, I found somewhat comical was uh, they were talking to Custy Amato, uh, who used to train um, several boxers. And there was this infamous story about Muhammad Ali that a reporter asked Muhammad Ali uh, how many sit-ups he does during the workout. And he kind of paused for a second and said, I don't know, about 50. And they were taken aback because they assumed that a, a heavyweight champion of his athleticism would do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sit-ups. And he further explained, yeah, I only start counting when they get painful. Like he disregards the first 200. Those meant nothing to him. The only ones that mean anything are the ones after the discomfort starts. So that's all he really keeps track of. And it's the same thing for the rest of us. You know, our comfort zone can be a cage because if we stay confined in it, we'll never stretch and we'll never grow. And we have to learn how to uh, embrace discomfort, uh, mental, physical, emotional, and, and even spiritual if appropriate. 
So Alan, if somebody hears you talking, I mean, I, I can have a shorthand with this because of some of my background, but sometimes if I, if I'm objective and I listen to this kind of conversation, I think, Oh, these two lucky them like, Oh, embrace the suck and all this stuff that we're like, you can do it. And all these things. My real hope is to try to understand how do we prompt people who really are genuinely yearning for this kind of thing. And let's say in sport, but beyond how, what is the prompt? What is the, what is the invitation uh, to get? Cause the belief is often so strong that somebody couldn't, what, what is the, is there something that you could, that we can offer that maybe makes sense beyond Hey, it's hard. And that's what it is, you know, because I, I'm like, Oh yeah, it is. I know. I get it. But what about those, someone like that? Well, the very first thing to do is, is give yourself some grace and let yourself know that it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to have these thoughts and it's okay to, to, to not have full belief in some of this stuff. Uh, the next step is you also want to do the best you can not to play the comparison game. So no one listening to this needs to compare themselves to Gabby Reese. All they need to do is say, okay, that's how she approaches it. I need to be internal and figure out how I'm going to approach it. And then really the, the mindset that I try to go through life with is do the best you can with what you have, wherever you are. That's it. Do the best you can with what you have, wherever you are. And, and everybody's best they can is slightly different, you know? And, and if someone looks at you and is a little intimidated because they know the best Gabby can do is all the way up here. And I believe the best I can do is down here. That's okay. We're all running our own race. We don't need to play that comparison game. But the key is having, as Jocko Willink says, an attitude of extreme ownership and that we're not going to blame, complain, or make excuses for any of this, that, that I'm going to do the best I can to embrace discomfort, but I have to acknowledge that my tolerance and acceptance of discomfort is probably different than somebody else's. You know, I mean, this is what I do for a living and I'm very proud of the man that I'm becoming in the path that I'm on. But I don't think for one second that I have the same tolerance for discomfort as Jocko Willink, or I don't have the same tolerance of a work ethic that the late, great Kobe Bryant had. And that's okay. Because I don't need to compare myself to either one of them. I'm on my path. And then what we need to do is find out ways that we can have tiny daily wins and then make incremental progress. So, you know, you don't have to take a running jump into the deep end. You know, you can dip your toe in it at first and and then slowly incrementally get more comfortable with welcoming discomfort in your life. And ultimately what you'll see is I'm okay. Like I was really worried about that. I did a little bit of it and, and I'm still here. So now I can do it again and I can try to go a little bit further the next time. And, you know, as I said earlier that, that I'm not speaking from a place of mastery, I have to constantly catch myself because I, I play the comparison game. You know, I, I easily play the comparison game in a lot of different capacities. You know, I find myself momentarily playing it with other speakers and other authors and people on Instagram. I find myself momentarily thinking it with folks that compete in some ultra marathons and some things that I've given an attempt to. And once I have that awareness, I realize, you know, that it's not, it's not taking me any closer to who I'm trying to become. And it's definitely not adding to my fulfillment. You know, what, one of the perfect examples. So last, um, Last uh, Labor Day, uh, I participated in an ultra endurance event. It's called the Last Man Standing, and and it's held in Maine every year. And basically, you run a 4.2-mile loop, uh, a trail loop, 
and you have an hour to run it. And anything underneath that hour is yours to rest because every hour on the hour, you start again. And ultimately you run until there is a last man standing. And we say man in quotes because it's it's yeah. gender neutral. There are plenty of women there that were yes. unbelievable. And, you and know, they're better at the long stuff, actually. They are, and they're absolutely incredible. And, and and I ended up finishing in like the lower percentile of everyone that entered that race. I was easily in the bottom 10%. However, I ran a personal best by far. I ran just over 42 miles, which for me was the farthest that I've ever run. So then it's a matter of, you know, now the gentleman that won ran uh, almost 160 miles. So, you know, if, if I choose the time... How many times have you uh, did that race? He ended up doing 36 laps. So he no, basically I mean, was running for 36 hours. But I'm saying it's also like, was that your first time you did that race? It was the second time that I had done it. I had done right. it the year prior. and I, I got in an extra loop that I didn't get the year before. So I had made progress and then extended my streak of the furthest that I've ever run. Yeah. But it's the matter of vantage point. If I want to compare myself to him, and I know nothing about this guy, I don't. I, all I have is the snapshot of the fact that that's what he was able to do. If I choose to compare my performance to his, it leaves me feeling very empty and feeling less than and unworthy. If I compare that to the fact that I did the best I could with what I had on that day, then I actually had a sense of pride and was mm -hmm. proud of the fact that that's what I was able to run. And, and yeah. so all of these perspectives are open to us at any given time, we just have to be very thoughtful and intentional in which one we choose to pursue and believe and, and follow. But but I did momentarily go, man, I only ran, you know, 10 laps. This guy ran 36. Boy, I suck. And well, you know what I would have done? I would have been like, like yeah, he ran 36, but guaranteed he has no life, this guy. I mean, I got three kids. I got a partner. This guy, this is all he does. He just runs. That's what I'm telling myself. I bet yeah, he probably just, that's all he does, you know, like. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because it, you bring up a great point. For the most part, we only have a very small snapshot of anything that we see somebody else do. Right. Um, and, and that's so true on social media. <laughs> you know, we don't know all of the behind the scenes. We don't know anything else. Um, so we have to be very careful about making an assumption that we know something about someone else yeah. because usually that assumption is what makes us feel worse. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it, but 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 not playing the comparison game yeah. is really hard because it's very enticing and I actually think social media is designed to get us to play it. Totally. I have I sometimes will when something starts to creep in and I can see it, I will automatically flip to congratulations, great job. Absolutely. You're great. You're you're a badass and I get out of it because I I don't want to be in that situation. It's like going out with somebody who makes you jealous and weird and insecure. It's like why right. are you in that situation? So, let's talk about uh pivoting. So, this is a midpoint and how do you not go into slumps and and things like this and midpoints can be many many years. Um you you talk a lot about the power of having a systems in place. I'm definitely a big system guy and 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 part of self-awareness is knowing how you operate best. And I know for me personally, I've always loved consistency, routine, systems, processes. Like I like having those frameworks, but I have some friends that, that are unbelievably high performers. That actually makes them feel somewhat claustrophobic. Like they like having spontaneity and they like, you know, so it, it's, a, it's a matter of figuring out what works best for you. But generally speaking, Every single person on the planet has a morning and an evening routine. 
My only question is, did you design it intentionally or have you just kind of fallen backwards into it? You know, we are as human beings, we are creatures of habit. Uh, there was a Duke University study that found that 42% of everything we do during our waking hours is habitual, which means almost half of everything we do during our days, um, we have grooved a very specific, repeatable behavior. So we just need to ask ourselves, are the things we're doing, particularly in our morning and evening routines, are these things we're doing with intention and purpose that we've designed or have we just kind of fallen backwards into them? But as far as what you choose to do and when you choose to do it, you know, you've got some freedom there. I'm, I'm not one of those believers that there is one magical morning routine that every person on the planet should follow. Everybody needs to, to figure out what works for them. And part of that is some trial and error and saying, okay, when I do this, when I wake up at this time and I eat this or I do this, I tend to feel better. And when I feel better, I perform better. Well, great. Then do more of that. Uh, conversely, if you figure out when you do other things, you don't feel as good. Well, then do less of that. I mean, we, we tend to make life so much more complicated than it is. You know, at the end of the day, do more of what works, do less of what doesn't. I mean, I, I can't put a bigger bow tie on the key to life than that. But it takes being objectively observant to figure out what those things are. So um, I, I have a morning routine, but that morning routine has evolved over the last couple of years as I've tried new things. Well, and it changes like what work is working now in a few years, you'll look at that and be like, it's not enough or it's too much, or I'm going to do this, or I'm spending more time doing this in my life. And I think that's the other thing is you want that objectivity to create that system, but you want that flexibility to be willing to say, I'm going to change that system. And in the book, you say that uh, burnout is a, is a misalignment. Yes. Yeah. It, people think that burnout solely comes from working long hours. And that's, that's not completely true. Now, I am a big believer that you have to have self-care protocols uh, in place and routines to help refill and nourish your own bucket. So you need to do things to physically, mentally, and emotionally, and spiritually you know, uh, uh, recharge your own battery. But it's not just from working long hours. It's when the long hours you're working and the sacrifices you're making are no longer in alignment with where you find meaning and purpose. Uh, if the, the work you're putting in no longer is fascinating or you're not curious by it, uh, if the sacrifices you're making, but you don't feel like you're actually making a contribution or moving yourself forward, if you're just on that hedonic treadmill, then that's when burnout arises. Because uh, I know folks that, that do work a lot of hours, but they get so much enjoyment and fulfillment out of their work they're not at risk at burnout because they also have those self-care you know, systems in place. So um, that that's ultimately what we need to do from a burnout standpoint is make sure you find meaning and purpose in the work you're doing. It challenges you. It, it pushes you towards becoming the person you want to become. And you believe you're actually making a contribution to someone or something bigger than yourself. Yeah. And I, I think it's also important for people to give themselves permission that if something worked really well for a really long time or excited them, um, the possibility is they might have, it might be time to move on. And that can be really confusing, especially when it's something pretty cool. Like you go, it is cool. And I may not even be on something externally that appears to be as cool, but I, I might be, I might need to move on from this. So from pivoting, you, you talk about prevailing and just, you know, you talk about, I think it's really interesting because Laird and I, my, you know, my husband's an athlete and he, he's still in, in heavy duty pursuit. It's very interesting for me to watch um, because he's, you know, on, and as far as athletes, it, he's, uh, you know, 
he's in his fifties and it's like a crazy person. Right. And, um, I'm like, wow. But I realized because he never was told what to do, when to be there, how to do it, when to show up at practice, what day to compete. This has been a real personal pursuit. There's no politics involved. He doesn't have to be around aggro guys that, you know, like they're fighting. He doesn't have a front front office that treats him badly. He doesn't have a coach that's putting him on the court, you know, too quick from an injury. It's like he's in control. And part of it is, and there's an ever-changing landscape, right? Like a basketball square is a basketball square. A waves are different and ever-changing. But we talk yeah. a lot about guys leaving games because they're they're just, it's not fun. Not because they don't love the game and not that they couldn't play. Oh, absolutely. And, and certainly your husband is the, is the epitome of that, which is, I find incredibly inspiring and, and remarkable. And, you know, a, another one in, in recent news, you take somebody like Tom Brady, I mean, Tom Brady retired for three weeks and realized how much his life would be missing the game of football. He has so much fun playing football that he's just simply not ready to give it up yet. And I I find that incredibly inspiring. He he didn't go back for more money. He didn't go back for more fame. He went back because the man loves to play this game. And it's been so intertwined in his life for most of his life that the thought of giving it up prematurely – just didn't sit well with him. So, you know, he wants to keep doing it. So I I love the fact that both Tom Brady and and Laird are so intrinsically motivated that they're doing this because they love it. It gives them, you know, meaning and fulfillment and it's taking them down the path of becoming the best versions of themselves. And, and they've, they've, they've just, you know, woven that in so beautifully. There's sort of two side, two ends to it. So you have somebody who wants to get into an occupation. Uh, we'll use sports, but let's leave sports for a second. Sometimes you almost have to do a ton of work before you can do the work you want to do. Um, yeah. You know, it's like you have to work to get the gig to to do it. And and people think the work is the job, and I'm like, no, the work is getting the work um, <laughs> that you really want to do. But on the other side of it, in this part where you're talking about prevailing. If, if not in sport as much, but let's say in a, in a job, in a profession, what are some of the ideas that one could sustain that, you know, that performance and that excitement about what they're doing, given it's something they still want to really be doing? So you're talking about them making a switch to do something different or how can they kind of no in, in prevailing like, like the fire and what they are doing? Yeah. Keeping the energy going, because I think sometimes we get to a certain level and it's like, Oh, I've been around this block before I've been around this block 50 times. And yeah. so I always wonder, it's such a curious thing. Cause I even feel that with sometimes with, with time and aging where I'm like, I've heard this story before. Um, so w- I think it's an internal interesting internal kind of conversation to be had about prevailing. Oh, most certainly. Well, it reminds me that the best, I think the single best piece of advice I was ever given as a teenager was find something you love to do, find something you're naturally pretty good at, and then find where those two things intersect. So basically take what you're passionate about and what you have some natural talent for and find where those two things intersect. And that point of intersection will be your strength zone. And the more time you can invest in your strength zone, uh, not only will you perform at a higher level, but you'll also have more joy and fulfillment in doing so. And as we get older, that point of intersection is going to change because we're going to develop new passions and we're going to develop new skills and talents. So that point of intersection uh, will change. And we just want to make sure that we're always cognizant of it. And whatever work you're in at present, 
make sure that your role, if you're working, let's say, for a conventional business or organization, make sure that your role is, is within a few degrees, if not hitting the target of your strength zone. That what your team needs from you is something you enjoy and it's something you're pretty good at. And, and oftentimes that means even within a traditional you know, uh, company structure that you may have to switch to a different role or take on a, a different responsibility or a different job within that just to make sure that that fire stays lit. But mm-hmm. if you can constantly do work that you, you enjoy and are pretty good at, that's where you'll you'll derive meaning, especially if that work is is adding value to someone else's life, and you know that you're making a contribution either to your team or to the end customer or client. But trying to make sure that you're staying within that strength zone. And uh, a word that I use all of the time is recalibrate. You have to recalibrate that. You know, maybe not every month or so, but at least a couple of times a year, and ask yourself: Is the work I'm doing right now in my current role does it fill me up? Does it excite me? You know, am I excited to get out of bed in the morning? And this doesn't mean that every single moment of every single day is puppy dogs and ice cream. I mean, I love what I do for a living. Absolutely love it. And yeah, there's some portions of the work that aren't my favorite, but generally speaking, I'm absolutely at that point of intersection. Um, And I have to keep recalibrating to make sure that I stay there. And I I think when I hear stuff like this um, separately, uh, I think if you're a mom, and you think I want to continue to be in the workforce, if not when my children are, are brand new, eventually to try to figure out a strategy ahead while the kids are babies so that you, you're going to understand your path back. And I think if you're a working male, that what I have seen really shows up that's very supportive of, of them is like a men's group or once a week where there's this conversation, because I think it's very easy to forget that everybody has feelings and sometimes people are doing what they think they should be doing, but they're not ever really being asked if they are doing what they want to be doing. Um, and then you add responsibility, you add family, you add mortgages, and that goes out the window. So if someone's listening to this, especially when we're talking about prevailing or even pivoting, just make sure also when you go back to those mentors, have these groups where you can be really forthcoming about what you're navigating, because I, I see this a lot. And um, I just think it's a, an important reminder to go, hey, I'm here and I, I need someone to just maybe hear me out, you know. Oh, so well said. Absolutely. And and if you do find yourself feeling stuck or feeling like you're trapped and feeling like, well, I have to keep doing this job because I need the paycheck and I've got a lot of people depending on me. I mean, no judgment for me. I have nothing but empathy and compassion for you. But realize that you can find time, even even it's in small increments, to do some of these things on the side. Do right. the things that that re that nourish you and 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 fill your bucket. And you know, um, I think it was Stephen Covey that said, "Start with the end in mind." So if you're thinking about making some type of eventual transition from your current vocation to something different. Uh, you don't have to rip it off like a Band-Aid or just go running and jumping and quit your job and put all of your eggs in the next basket. You can say, okay, in a perfect world, I would be doing this thing over here. Let me figure out what are the steps that I need to take to get to that point. And let me start to map out a plan and figure out what are some things I can do in my spare time when I'm not working or I I don't have parental or, or spousal responsibilities that I can start working towards that. And just the feeling of having something you're working towards will help improve both hope and optimism because you'll kind of see that light at the end of the tunnel and it'll make some of these other things much more palatable in the meantime. Yeah. And in the, 
in this section, you, you, you really talk about rest and play and you say, you know, every day, one hour, every week, every week you want a a day away from devices and every month have a total of one weekend away from your device. Is that yeah, right? just to untether and, and get out of work mode completely. Yeah. And uh, and I know that, you know, th- this depends somewhat on age and the stage sure. you are in your career. It depends on what type of work you do. But, but the point is, don't feel that you have to be a slave to your device or that you have to be plugged in 24-7. There are very few occupations um, or very few things in general that can't wait a little bit extra time for you to respond to them or to pay attention to them. And, and ultimately it's just the, the mindset of, are you letting your device control you or are you controlling it? And if, if anyone listening to this right now, if the thought of me taking your phone away for an hour gives you heart palpitations, then you probably need to start making a change. You know, it's that old adage where this young kid, you know, visits a monk and, and, and asks the monk for some direction. And the monk says, you know, you need to meditate for 10 minutes a day. And the kid says, well, I don't have 10 minutes. And he said, oh, okay, well, then you need to meditate for 20 minutes a day. And it's that same mindset. Like if you don't think you can give up your phone for an hour, you probably need to give it up for a day just to start working towards building that type of muscle so that you're the one in control. And and I'm not anti-phone. I'm not anti-technology. I'm not anti-social media. Those are beautiful tools that we can use as long as we're the ones that are driving the car. Uh, we can't let them be in control. So for me, and, and, and I've, you know, because I love structure and routine and consistency, uh, I set up certain what I call pre-commitments to make sure that I'm not being controlled my, by my phone. So if I'm going to have dinner with my children, then I leave my phone in the car. Because if I'm at dinner and I feel it buzz or I hear it ding, I'm going to check it. I mean, that's just, I'm, I'm conditioned like Pavlov's dog. So I don't even bring it with me. And um, so we can decide in advance, you know, if you're going to have dinner with your significant other or some family time or whatever it may be, you can make the decision in advance to completely untether from that device. Yeah. I mean, I, I get dirty looks from uh, Laird, so I leave it in, in the car at dinner, especially if I know like <laughs> kids are all square or if they're with you. I'm going to finish this up by you, you talk about fulfillment. So, you know, this, I think someone would see, um, you know, sustain your game and think, oh, this is about performance. But what I felt also was that it was a a pathway to, uh, you know, taking something on, keeping something going, adding as you go. I think you said something about, um, you know, if you want more, become more things like that. And you talk about gratitude in the book, it's that there's actually a freedom in all of this because at the end you're, you're, I, it felt to me that you were sort of talking about overall, besides contributing, getting a sense of fulfillment from what you're doing. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that resonated with you. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, you know, whether we're, you're playing a game of volleyball or it's a game of basketball, um, we as a society have already already predetermined that the team with the most points at the end is the winner. Like it's concrete, it's black and white. We already know that. But life is a little bit more esoteric and abstract. You know, how you might define winning in life might be slightly different than me, might be slightly different than, than many of your listeners. All that matters is that we get crystal clear 
on what winning looks like to us or excellence or whatever it is that you're trying to pursue. What, what do you want that scoreboard of your life to, to look like? And once you've gotten crystal clear on that, then you need to design your life accordingly. And ultimately for me, and in this, I use inner peace to be synonymous with fulfillment. Like I use those two words interchangeably. So ultimately what I'm looking for um, is to have a sense of fulfillment in my life, um, a, a contentment, if you will. I don't think contentment is a bad word. Uh, I don't think contentment and complacency mean the same thing. I am far from complacent in my life, but I am incredibly content that I have my health, that I have three amazing children who all have their health, that I have an opportunity to do something for a living that I really love to do and I find meaning in. Um, so uh, with that being said, for me, the goal is fulfillment. So I try to design every area of my life to add to that. And um, I've gotten off of that, that race of trying to let other people define success, you know, whether that's monetarily or relationally or, or anything in between. Um, if it's not leading to my fulfillment, then I do my best not to let it be a distraction. And if it is going to lead towards fulfillment, then I try to find things that will give me traction. So Alan, in ending this, I have to ask you just as a human being, because that's what we are, you're very organized and dialed in and it's all, you know, you've written books, it's all this. And I think I can relate to this. Are you able to be, do you fight the structure and like, are you able to be sort of, I would imagine children really help you with this, but you know, messy and chaotic and able to go with that a little bit. Um, because I find that when people are really good at this kind of stuff, that I'm always curious because this is, of course, at the end, I'm curious for myself. Um, you know, rolling with the punches. And I don't mean that objectivity going, oh, it's going to be okay. I mean, like, man, you're like, none of this is going the way I planned. And um, even, especially in parenting, right? Like, you guarantee you have one of your children that is going to take a completely different path than you thought your genetics would produce. How do you, yeah. how do you, you know, make peace, like, how do you make peace with that? I'm getting better at it. And, and I would say that it's not in my natural wiring uh, to be spontaneous, to go with the flow. I mean, I'm a planner, I'm a linear thinker, um, but I've also tried to, and even in that description of that, I need to let go of any of these self-imposed labels that I've put on myself. I mean, the only person saying uh, I'm, I'm a, a linear thinker is me, and I don't have to label myself as that. So I don't need to use these I am statements. And, and back to something we said earlier, like my children give me plenty of opportunities to practice being more spontaneous. They give me an opportunity to practice rolling with the punches because you have no idea what they're going to do next or what they're going to say next. And I, I relish those opportunities, yeah. but I also, at the same time, I give myself grace. I find that if I'm, if I'm uncomfortable because I'm missing the structure and the predictability, yeah. I let myself know, Alan, it's, it's okay to be uncomfortable with that, you know, but, but let's try and go with the flow. And uh, <laughs> ultimately I do have the belief and the optimism that no matter what's thrown my way, I will have the strength and courage to be able to handle it in that moment. And yeah. uh, whether that's something trivial like traffic or something you know much more catastrophic, um, I'll have an opportunity to handle it. And and I don't know in advance that I'll handle it with with the poise and the grace that I'm speaking with you right now. But I know that will be the goal. And if I do, that's wonderful. And if I don't, I'll give myself some grace and I'll move to the next play.
Well, Alan Stein Jr., the book is Sustain Your Game. Now, what's the release date? Because I had it's the, I had the alley. Okay, it is out. Okay, perfect. It is did out you do- now and it's, it's rocking and rolling. Did you do audio? I did, yeah. And I did the read for it and uh, really, really enjoyed that. That it, For anyone that's never done their own audiobook, it's a lot of work and it's really hard to do, but I loved yeah. every second of it. So yeah, the audio is out as well. So I think I encourage people because I think audio sometimes will get them there quicker because then they can be in, you know, in traffic and thinking about how to be better in traffic. But I will also (laughs) say this is a type of book that wouldn't be that would be good to have on hand because you could go back and look at things, too. So I appreciate your time and your work and um, and just thanks. Absolutely. This was so much fun. Thank you so much, Gabby. Thank you. Aloha. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.